Hi everyone, today is September 7th, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Sorry, I forgot whether I had my mic on. Some of you may be able to tell that we're trying out a new sound system here, so leave comments on how you feel about it. Um, okay, so back to the podcast. Our guest today is Suzanne Haber. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. She is Distinguished Professor of Pharmacology and Physiology at the University of Rochester Medical Center uh, and a visiting professor at the McLean Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Her, her labs, I guess, since it sounds like you have more than one, yeah. are, are carefully map, mapping um, functional connectivity of distributed cortical, subcortical networks in animal models, and she's using some cool methods to map these precise data onto human brain data with the goal of understanding how to leverage tools like DBS to treat brain disorders like schizophrenia, OCD, addiction, and a lot more. So um, thanks for joining us. Thank um, you. Yeah. And around the room, we've got uh, Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi, Todd. We've got Alfonso Apicella. Hi. And we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hi, Charlie. So um, here's what I want to talk about with you. Um, so it's we're always, like since the beginning of neuroscience, we've, we've always been looking to map, um, for space to map onto function in the brain, or behavior to map onto, fun onto the brain somehow, spatially, right? And it's gratifying when it does. For example, um, you know, more recently, like the way movement control maps roughly onto, the, onto basal ganglia loops. Um, but we know that segregation is never the whole story, because how do you build behavior without integration? Um, and, and your work on the, on the topography of cortical striatal circuits has, has pointed a lot to this integrative idea within basal ganglia, and it's, which is surprising since it's a brain structure that for so long was seen as a series of channels. And it's now propelling this idea in the last um, few, I guess, the last decade, it's really taken off, right? I would say about this idea that, that um, basal ganglia is sort of a, a motivation to movement interface. So can you... Um, can you say something about that, these ideas, and just also like in terms of, of doing the structured function type work, um, how do you map the dimensions of function? Is function always behavior? Or like where, how, do you, how do you begin with these problems? And, and, and just can you use your work as, a, as, as sort of an example to, to illustrate some of this stuff? Yeah, so it's a really interesting um, question and set of problems. Uh, our work, of course, focuses on anatomical connections, structural connections um, that may mediate, that, that are important to behavior. So we know some very, you know, simple, straightforward things. Uh, we know where vision is, we know where motor function is, we know where the primary sensory systems are. Uh, we know a lot about um, certain emotional areas. and. As soon as you get into regions like frontal cortex, you become a little bit more hazy in terms of what the function, the precise function is. So our approach has, of course, been to use anatomy and to think about um, how uh, the brain is wired. Now, obviously, it's one approach, and uh, many people um, take different different approaches to it. So that's that's where we start. How are areas that we really know what the function is because the readout is very clear. In the visual system, it's very clear. Um, the motor system, it's very clear. When you're talking about cognition and social interactions, et cetera, et cetera, it becomes less clear. So we build our, 
our idea about function really from the things we know the best and then kind of build inwardly, I suppose, is one way to think about it. So what, do we, what does it mean? So if we find, a, like, a, let's see if I can think of a good example. So we find a, a cortical region that projects to the motor system and sits nearby the motor system, and then we find that we can stimulate that and make movements, but it takes a higher intensity of stimulus. And so we name that, you know, premotor cortex or something like that. Is that really a, that's, is that a fair way for us to propagate our knowledge of function backwards from the motor system? What's the right? So I don't know what the right way is, but I think it comes from a lot of converging evidence. So is that area of cortex that you're talking about, uh, what happens when you lesion it in other studies, what happens in in human imaging studies, does that activate during certain movements or certain preparation of movements, etc. So there's a lot of converging evidence for whatever area of cortex you're talking about um, to do some set of functions in the wake behaving monkey physiology studies that people recorded from there. I mean, so there are a lot of different pieces of information that can come into that into that equation. And then, of course, the anatomy of it is one important piece of it. So it doesn't stand alone, for sure, but it's just one more, I mean, that that's a structural wiring of, of that area of cortex. And then you want to ask questions, okay, we have this idea of this area of cortex that feeds into motor system. We have all this information from imaging, weight behavior, monkey physiology. We have some information from the rodents. We have this structure. Where else does it project? What goes into it? So you start to build a, a kind of a, a system, right? A system and a model. I don't know that you've really come to the function of that area, uh, other than the one motor neurons that are going down to the spinal cord. You know, I don't, I'm not sure. You know, but you get closer and closer as you build these um, ideas from a lot of information. Anatomy is only one of them. I just happen to think it's an important one. <laughs> so how? Um, I mean, how much confidence should we have about these maps? Because they are built from lots of different ideas, and I guess uh, occasionally a structure will appear twice. Once as doing this job, and once as doing this other job. Right. And um, I guess we could accept that parts of the brain could do two jobs, especially if they're kind of related to each other. Or we could have a, a battle to see, is it really part of this, or is it really part of that? So then in functional uh, studies, you know, it's always going on, right? So there are right. always battles between people who are looking at behavior and function. Uh, is exactly that question. Is this part of the brain really doing this, or is it really doing that, or is our behavioral paradigm not really, you know, drilling down to the real function, or is, you know, is it coming in between two functions, etc.? So you have those arguments, I think, all the time. I, They're based on the idea that we ought to have a one-to-one map between are. the brain and function, and ought we to have a one-to-one map? Well, I don't know. I think that that's exactly the question. I, I think it's pro- so. So the question is: Do we have a one-to-one function, or and/or do we have the right function? Right? Is right. it is it a is a is it a mega function? And the things that you're looking at are just sort of pieces of that sort of more mega function. I don't know. I guess you can't see my gestures. <laughs> <laughs> we can imagine that. 
So I'm wondering how, how, so where do you get out of, uh, uh, of the loop? Because of somewhere you have a bunch of stories about function, right? And you have, then you uh, do the anatomy and yeah. you connect them. And then either you confirm them or you make a story that's confirmational. Oh, this makes sense because X, Y, Z is talking to X, Y, you know, whatever, A, B, C. Uh, and then, but presumably you have surprises. That's when we actually learn something where, oh, I didn't expect to have this kind of connection there or that strong or that kind of overlap. And so wh where's the way out? When you have a surprise, does that mean do another, rethink the functional experiment or come up with a new, uh, like, where do you take the anatomy? You know what I'm saying? Like, how, do you go back and look at the physiology studies and say what the task was, and then we thought about the task or the function with the wrong word? God, or, do these ever disagree with each other? Or they always yeah. seem to agree with each other, right? Everybody always says, oh, well, this result makes sense. Yeah. It, what if they didn't? But, but, but you know, you, you use an interesting term, how do you get out of it? I don't think I want to get out of it. I mean, I think it's all building on a system, and so... So you learn more, and maybe you were wrong, right? Or maybe well, that's what I meant. They get out of the because you can't have a positive feedback loop where you tell a story that's the story that's already been told, right? right? And you look for something because you have the story there, and it makes sense. And then you tell more of the same story, and you ignore other things. That, that's what I meant about getting out of it. I mean, it's a dangerous yeah uh, thing. Though it's super popular, and people like to do it because. Telling the same story over and over again makes everybody feel good, and it's probably the best way to get your paper accepted by reviewers and so on. So it's just an interesting thing that, that dogmas funded. often start with anatomy, but anatomy often ends dogmatic thinking about areas of the brain too, don't you think? Yeah, especially when people start saying, oh, well, these things are connected, and it turns out they're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the reverse. Uh, but there's these, um, there's also, sort, especially so in cortical-cortical connections, that the cortical-cortical connectivity is so rich that it can be overwhelming. Oh, yeah. And so mm -hmm. we all know this like, famous diagram, Van Essen diagram, that gets shown over and over again. And I don't, different people show it for different reasons, but often the person is showing it for one of two reasons. One of them is to, is to blow your mind and make you feel terrible. Like, oh my God, I'll never figure this out. And the second reason for showing it is to show that the hippocampus is at the end of it. Right? And nobody ever shows it for any other reason as far as I can tell. But like, nobody ever shows it so that you can see a pattern in it or make sense out of it. But there must be... Well, it's, That's not I, your no, view no, no. of the well, cortical, no, cortical connection, yeah, right? They, they've shown it to, you know, they compare it to the subway maps of a number of cities, for example, right? Uh -huh. So that, that tells you that there is a kind of a system, uh, a system of major pathways and minor pathways, right? And a road map, right? Uh -huh. so, and so there's like feed, feed forward and feedback. Feed forward and feedback. No, I think that it's really quite true when you look at connections, they, if you show somebody everything, it really is, is, is very confusing. Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything common. Yeah. I, I don't have anything else to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, but that's so true of the basal ganglia, uh, right? Absolutely. If we showed you every input in, a, in and out of the basal ganglia, I think nobody would work on it. Uh -huh. But that's true. Of it. So the, 
it isn't that everything goes everywhere, though. I mean, the first thought looking at those diagrams is just that that connectivity is complete. But it isn't. There, there are parts of the cortex that are not connected to other parts of the cortex. Tell me that's true. I want to believe that. Oh, it is true. Of course. Yeah, so... so um, that no, but what I mean by that is that, first of all, two synapses away, Everything kind of falls apart, right? Uh -huh. Everything, everything, pretty much is. I mean, that's. I don't really know if that's entirely true, but two synapses away, most things are connected. But if you, if you do look at a system like the basal thing, you actually do draw all of them in. It's really very hard to focus, and, and I don't mean everything is connected, but there's quite a lot of connections. <laughs> yes, I, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. What <laughs> uh, I was, what I was wondering is. You know, our strategy for uh, for digesting that. Yeah. So that network of intracortical connections is essential for us to understand, to understand the cortex, I think. Uh, and, and so we need a system for looking at it and making sense out of it. We need maybe principles that govern it that we could learn. So one of the principles I learned as a a beginner in the basal ganglia was a notion that uh, cortical areas that, that are strongly interconnected converge in the striatum. I don't know if that's a, still true, but it was. There was some evidence for it, and there was a famous paper that proposed that that was the pattern. And there was something deeply satisfying about that because it it told you when you should and shouldn't see convergence in the striatum. And even though, and it sounds suggestive like, wow, cortical areas that are talking to each other ought to converge in the striatum. I don't know really why I should think that, but somehow that seems satisfying to me. That seemed like something that I could believe in. So the, is the solution to understanding these really complicated connectivity of the cortex finding principles like that? Are we are we still searching for principles that organize it? Or, or now we just making a catalog and hoping the catalog is going to mm, somehow sense will come out of the catalog? Or maybe we could make just a searchable database out of all of that stuff and then I could seed some spot and follow upstream as far as downstream as far as I wanted to go. Well, I do think, I mean, I do think there's clear system organization of the brain. I don't think it's completely everything is connected to everything else. I think there are principles. I think we probably just don't know all of them. So the one you refer to, the cortical areas that are connected to each other are also uh, converge in the striatum. There was a little controversy about whether they converge or whether they digitate. You probably remember those papers, but that's not, not the point here. Um, but what we have found, and I think others have as well now, is that they, that, that's certainly a principle that we can pretty much rely on, that those areas do tend to come into the same region of the striatum. But in addition to that, we find other ones coming in as well. I don't mean that, I don't think that it's going to be completely random. Um, the, the data I showed before, and so this is a podcast, so they don't know what that data is, but we showed an area in the striatum that you might can, uh, imagine areas um, converging because the cortical cortical connections converge, but the area with the IPL that comes in and converges cortical cortically, it converges with the prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's a known connection. 
but not so much with you know uh, some of the other areas that we found in that spot in the striatum. So there may be, um, you know, when you think about it, cortical cortical connections. I mean, they talk a lot to each other. They don't need to talk to each other again in the striatum necessarily, right? They've already done that discussion. <laughs> so it may be that obviously something else is going on in the stratum, and maybe that is a principle that they, they do that there. But it could be also that we now bring in some other elements that you need uh, in the striatum. Not that it's you know free-for-all, but you may have that convergence with additional input from other places. So, so I don't know we, we know the answer to that. Um, so, yeah, I want to kind of ask a methodological question question that way, because Charlie actually uh, almost uh, outlined a really kind of cool uh, research program, like a 21st century research program in the sense of, are we just catalog uh, cataloging things, or are we searching for these principles? And if there was enough standardization of building up data, like, if there's a principle that this has happened, cortical areas that uh, uh, talk to each other, um, project to the striatum. How that thing is generally made is that you have two or three examples, right? And then you ask that and you say, oh yeah, this may be a principle, but you can't ask that over the whole brain, yeah. right? You can't ask well, how good the principle is and you can't ask how many exceptions there are Even in, a, that, in yeah, a systematic way unless you just is, you know, come up ad hoc. Yeah. And the question is, are we getting enough kind of this data-centric view of enough standardization that you could have a catalog, and then someone someone could ask that way that state that principle in a systematic way, and then test it in a systematic way. So, not the answer is yes or no, but where are the exceptions? Uh, where is it interesting? How often are they? I mean, is it a principle that's really worthwhile as a principle, or and the exceptions are then super interesting, or is it kind of well, it kind of happens or not. I mean, are the are the data is the data building up in a way that that could happen? Because uh, it has to be you know static enough so that you have to amalgamate lots of studies. I mean, I just wonder like because you're trying to go between primates and humans and and primates and rodents, and that's the kind of thing that you need enough standardization that you're not just picking a gazillion pieces of the literature, right? Right. How much do you need to know for it to be relevant to the level of granularity that we can see in humans to intervene in things like schizophrenia? Like, how, like how, how, how deep does So I think that if you, I mean, it's easy to talk about general principles. I don't think that that's really going to get at it, though, because there, it's not clear to me that one principle is going to be the same for the whole brain. And I think we just need to start with, um, uh, you know, area by area, if you will. So if you want to talk about the striatum, that's one, I think, area to discuss. The thalamus might be a completely different, you know, set of rules in terms of how cortex in, interacts with the thalamus and how it interacts with vasopagnia, et cetera. It might not be the same set of you know, principles, and the cortical-cortical principles could be different. So I don't think, <clears throat> I think we have to start with it, you know, uh, not in a global way, but, you know, one piece at a time. And then once, you know, you think that you can identify these principles and you can prove them, say in the striatum, thalamus, cortex, or wherever, 
you can see whether they apply, how, the, how well they apply to other areas. I mean, when we look at the principles, as I w was talking today, about how fibers get to where they're going um, through the brain, you can identify that depending on where the fibers are coming from. They're going to have a set, different set of rules depending on where they're going from, but nonetheless you can identify uh, ways, you know, those rules. So <clears throat> if you, to, to answer your, your question for the striatum, I think that that is doable. So for example, in our lab we have now um, close to, I don't remember the number, I gave you a number last night. 600. No, 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 yeah, that's, the, that's everything. But the, just the injections in the, um, in the cortex, um, I probably didn't give you that number, but in, in, like in, in prefrontal cortex we have, you know, 100 plus uh, injections. So one could actually ask some of those questions directly, which is what we're starting to do. How do we reparse out the striatum based on, the, on all of those areas? Can you develop a, a model for where you've got, you know, these convergence, these areas of anomalies that you won't expect based on your general topography that we've all we all know about, right? Um, so whether that is set of rules, then applying them, we can look at as you know we mentioned today in the human and the rodent, but whether that applies to the same cortical projections, but now in the thalamus, you know, I, I think you'd have to do it again. You couldn't, you couldn't extrapolate what you see in the striatum to the thalamus. So how, how important is the idea of volume of connectivity? Because, I mean, how big does a connection have to be to be significant? So, for example, we could have really small connections of perhaps non-canonical types of things like, you know, inhibitory things that are just sort of vaguely coming in here and there to sculpt stuff, right? Um, I completely agree. I have absolutely, that's a terrific question, and I actually do not have the answer to that. I mean, what those connections are and what they contain, and not only the volume, but who they land on and where they land, I think is just, you know, is the next level of discussion. I mean, one of the how different cell type can Yeah. So Absolutely. I mean, these are all the things that, you know, are, it just opens up a whole new area of research. And so you're just kind of, you know, expressing all of those, those questions, which I think is the next level of analysis. In a way, you sort of started that because you started using immunocytic chemistry to parse anatomical connections according to trace or it, not just not just who goes where but what cell type it is right. and it it sort of turned all that the whole anatomical endeavor on its side because it turns out that every pathway is more than one pathway and that what we're seeing and if we ask the connections from A to B is really a group of different things that are happen to all go from A to B and then, and then we are left with this search for how to parse the cell types that in the area A that contribute to projection B. And I think we haven't really yet uh, coped with that. That that became evident about the time that people started doing immunocytochemistry, yeah. which was some time ago. And then, uh, and 
and it's just grown. Every connection has has multiplied into into <coughs> increasingly more connections, and then and we haven't really yet uh, wrapped our minds around what that means and how to how to deal with it. So we keep finding another one. And I think every the the other side of that, which every anatomist is used to seeing, is I I made this injection here. And I saw these three major places that this place goes. And then I saw these four other places that also goes a little bit. Now, from, maybe in cortex you don't have to worry about this, but if you're making subcortical injections, your injections spilled out a little bit out of the target. And so one way out of having to worry about that is to say, ah, those probably were caused by me spilling out of the target a little bit. And of course, if you were really good, you'd specifically make a spilled injection to see if you can recreate those. And maybe you do. And then at that point, you say, ah, those weren't real. And then later, now, when people get better at like following individual neurons or little groups of neurons, you find, oh, yeah. Those four things, they were real, years. right? And somebody says, yeah, I saw those 20 years ago, but nobody believed me. And, that, and so the, the actual complexity of the anatomical connections that we're always talking about is way greater than we talk about. And, the, and it's getting more and more uh, that way. And there are more and more of these like subsidiary connections or minor connections? I don't know what to say about them. In the electron microscopic world, what it, it boiled down to something like this. I made a lesion in place A, and I looked at synapses in place B. And 80% of the synapses were this. They were symmetric synapses on dendritic spines. And then, you know, 18% of them were this other kind. And then there were these others. They're totally different. They're and, the, and electron microscopists always loved the different ones, and it would always have a figure showing all the ones that didn't fit the pattern. And then uh, uh, Valentino Breitenberg uh, d developed the, the inverse law of neuroanatomy, which was that uh, space in the journal is, is taken up inversely proportionally to the how common the thing being described is. <laughs> and, that, and that was really, really held for a long time. We don't do that right now. Now we've totally sweeped those weird things under the rug. But at that time, people delighted in all these weird exceptions, and there was never an absence of them. They were always there. And occasionally now, I see some paper where somebody's figured out what that weird exception was. And it was, it was something. It wasn't just error, right? misinterpreted picture or something like that. So I don't know exactly, I don't know what the meaning of what I'm saying is, but, <laughs> but it's uh, where uh, the notion that we're done with neuroanatomy is wrong. We're not, we barely got started figuring out what the, the connectivity that we need to turn into a big searchable database that allows us to search for these principles. I don't think we have. Uh, well, I don't think we have enough of it yet. Uh, maybe in cortical-cortical connections, because that's been studied really a lot, and the cortical areas are very well defined, and 
cortical injections can be made without spilling into other places. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the areas that you describe where you get the big, um, full projections, you can probably do that. So cortical, the, 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 the three largest connections of cortex, right, is cortex itself, straight in the thalamus, right? So, I mean, I think you could start to develop some of those principles in those areas. But it is interesting. I mean, we, I mean, to your point, you know, we, you know, people have described cortical con direct connections to the habenulin nucleus. And, um, and we haven't seen them. And in the rodent, you know, they're quite convinced they're there. And of course, this develops a, you know, a whole hypothesis about, um, the habenula and its relationship to dopamine and, you know, what drives the habenula nucleus and so on. And, um, so the, the main inputs we see, of course, are from which you can describe um, well is, is from the lateral hypothalamus and the globus pallidus, and then that whole kind of nebulous area there, which is where there's no boundaries, really. So another issue, I think, to your point, which I'm going to get off on a tangent on this, is the boundaries between areas, how we draw them. And when you look at connections, they often spill over those boundaries and into these no man land areas. As if they with, didn't know. Yeah, as if, you know, was. didn't you read the textbooks <laughs> with you? There is a boundary there. Good. But getting back to the Habenula, what was interesting is that, um, to your point, um, we, you know, the lateral Habenula is very close to the MD nucleus, right? And spilling into the MD nucleus is really easy. So we did exactly those experiments, right? And we found that as, as soon as you don't spill into MD, you get no cortical labeling. So they're all coming, they're all coming from that spill. But that's not, that wasn't my point. My point was that in some of the areas we noticed, I'm looking under the microscope and I'm looking in my usual places, and I'm following these fibers from the, um, from the uh, cingulate cortex and they're winding their way through, you'll be interested in this, and they're winding their way through and they're going into the palatal. And I'm thinking, like, what are they doing in the palatal? And they're going exactly into the area where the cells that are projecting to the habenula nucleus are living. Now, I don't do the experiments to actually know that they're actually going there. <clears throat> but first of all, my first surprise was at this late stage in the game of anatomy, as you said, that not everything has been discovered, you're looking under the microscope, and you know this has not been contaminated with anything, right? This is just spot on in the singular cortex. And there are these fibers going through the internal capsule, which they should be doing, and they leave the internal capsule in a lateral direction, and I'm thinking, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? <laughs> You're supposed to be going down to the thalamus now. And they do, of course. The main bundle is doing that. But you see these straggler fibers. They're going in the interlamer uh, areas, right? In those white matter regions that are surrounding the palatal, uh, the internal and the external uh, palatal structure. They're just kind of going through here. And then they come out. And that's exactly where those cells are living that are going to have that there sort of go. a thrill, I think, maybe to see something. It was like that really very, very time. fun. It was. It was. Uh, it is. Yeah, we're writing that one up. Uh -huh. <laughs> so one, but, one of the areas where it sounds like defining these these superhighway type um, connections is important is in, in this idea of therapeutics, because those mm. are sort of the most 
accessible, manipulable types of things for something like DBS, or um, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So can you can you want to guys want we have some people here who know about DBS. I just thought maybe you could say something about what um, you know what what are sort of the principles that that allow for how, how anatomy is sort of informing some of the DBS. Uh, right, so so there are a couple of ways, and it's not just DBS actually, um, um, I guess it's not as, as commonly known, there's still lesions done for um, psychiatric illnesses. Um, it fell out of favor obviously when, um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, but there are still some lesions that are very effective, and one is um, uh, um, in the in the corpus callosum, so that that lesion is still done in uh, uh, treatment-resistant um, OCD and depression uh, patients in a few places. It's a very effective lesion, so that's another area where you want to know what fibers are going through there, so that you can identify the areas that you're disconnecting very more precisely. Um, and then there are uh, capsulotomies, which are also done in the capsule obviously, uh, again, interrupting the fibers, and then there's DBS. And so then the DBS targets um, are in the internal capsule, is a common one for uh, OCD and depression. The STN is used um, commonly now in Europe for OCD. It's also clearly the uh, target of choice for PD, for Parkinson's disease. Um, and then there are Helen Mayberg's uh, site in the uh, subgenual um, singlet white matter area. So those are the th and the internal and the um, uh, nucleus accumbens is another area. It's pretty much impinging on the internal capsule. So those are the main um, targets. There are other ones that people have identified. The habenula has been a target. Um, this part of the lateral hypothalamus is a target for Alzheimer's now. Um, so there are a number of them, and so understanding what fibers are going through those areas obviously uh, is an important um, is important to know what you're what you're actually interrupting and how you change your parameters of the stimulation. It's uh, remarkable that the, all these methods work best when they're directed at axons rather than at cell bodies. Right? Well, the methods work the best at the frequencies there. But also the lesions you were just describing are almost all in, in well, white matter. Well, the singulotomies well. are not in the white matter, but if you look at them, they capture it. Uh -huh. so, so the singulotomies is the singular cortex, but if you, so we uh, collaborate with a number of the people that are doing those, and if you actually look at the MRIs and the structural uh, yeah, yeah, structural MRIs afterwards, you, you see that there's a very clear, um, it's not just a singular cortex, it's a singular bundle. Um, and that becomes really important because one of the bundles we've been looking at is what goes through what part of the bundle. So, you know, we can see that um, based on some of the stuff we've been looking at and the patient outcome, it looks like some of those um, lesions, the, the further rostral you are in not to go all the way rostral, but I mean, just from where they are, a little bit more rostral captures a slightly different subset of fibers, and those actually tend to be more effective. And so you can start to explain that and and um, uh, by what what you're interrupting, and also it um, it gives you some interesting you know guidance into 
well, we started this conversation about behavior and what behaviors are affected by what parts of the brain. So, you know, these are very precise lesions. The DBS is really a pinpointed area that you're stimulating. So when you start looking at the behavioral outcomes, I think you start to you kind of not you don't believe in the you know one function one area, but you, you realize that it's not completely globally distributed. So how much individual differences are there in the arrangements of those bundles? Like, as yeah. you can imagine, this they just tilt a little bit in somebody, and you tilt back, and then you switch everywhere if you're coming in from the yeah, absolutely. Direction. There's individual variation, and that's one of the things we're working on. I mean, not, we're not doing it, but you know, again, a lot of our colleagues are. Um, so, in most of these therapeutic approaches, you, of course, you have an image of the individual who's getting the surgery, mm -hmm. and then you can run the tracks in there based on the principles of where you know things should be. So, for example, if you know the internal capsule is organized in the way I was describing today, where you've got um, dorsal cortical areas are uh, traveling more dorsal and ventral, more ventral, medial lateral, and so on, you won't know necessarily in an individual uh, precisely where those fibers are. You just know the relation that the relationship will hold up. Okay, so if you have an electrode, <clears throat> for example, if you're too deep in the internal capsule and you're too a little bit too caudal and deep, and your deep electrode will be impinging on the very very bottom parts of those fiber bundles, so you're interrupting, um, you know, VMPFC, you might be capturing some of the amygdala fibers, you end up tending to get anxiety in patients. Um, so, and you can see that, right? Um, so if you know what you're getting in a patient and you know the relationship between how those fibers are going to organize, then in a given patient, maybe you're not that deep, but you're getting that. So maybe that patient, those fibers are a little bit, you know, whatever the angle was, a little bit different. So you might want to go, if you want to, then um, rather capture VLPFC fibers or dorsal anterior cingulate fibers, whatever your goal is, then you have a kind of perspective of maybe where about you should go in that individual. So it's not a point-to-point, -point, but it's a relationship kind of organization. It's ironic, I think, in a way that the, the course the axons took ended up to be so important. Because for a long time, nobody cared, cared about, about that. It was yep. just how the wires get from one place to the other. Who cares about that? It's right. where they started and where they ended. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And now the, the route that they take, which was ignored for a long time. And it's sad because, you know, it's all those, if you look at the early papers when people were doing anatomy, they had all those beautiful drawings, right? Yeah. The, all the lesion stuff. You saw all those gorgeous right. drawings, and they and they they left the literature. They yeah. just weren't there anymore. Yeah, well, the one it was considered a downside of those degeneration techniques that you saw the whole axon and the terminal field didn't look any different from the rest of it. Right. So you couldn't really tell <laughs> as you're looking at these de degenerating axons where the synapses were along the axons. And in fact, the earliest methods used degeneration of myelin as their characteristic, so the terminal field didn't, didn't even all. show up at, no, all. No, didn't see it at all. And so the discovery of methods that didn't show you anything really except the terminal field seemed like the most valuable thing you could possibly hope for, and sometimes the thing you want isn't necessarily the best thing for you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Suzanne Haber. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. 
This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm-hmm.